Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Chapel service, everybody. We are, like I said earlier, very blessed and privileged to have um, guests here this morning, Renee and Caleb Dwyer, who are from the Horizon Project that we see here, uh, but also um, pastors at Generosity Church in Bathurst and um, across all their campuses. Uh, their three girls, Eliza and Matilda and Mia, here as well. Very glad that you guys could be here, and we're going to be hearing from them in a moment. Yep, let's welcome them. <laughs> So firstly, we are going to uh, dive a little deeper into going deeper in Nehemiah. And uh, we finished up where last time, a couple of weeks ago, where they'd put the branches over the city to remind them of being in the wilderness when they had to build shelters. So seen Survivor, if you haven't, what are you doing with your life? And uh, the first thing that they have to do is build a shelter in order to survive. Well, in the wilderness, they had to build shelters. And so this building a shelter, even though they had a city and had houses, was to remind them that once upon a time, they had to rely um, on what was around them. And so they were everywhere. And I'm just going to read from verse 17 in chapter 18. It says, So everyone who had returned from captivity, because they'd been in Babylon, lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Now, um, Joshua, just so you know, was a thousand years before this moment. So this is so cool. It's the most they've celebrated in a thousand years that they're doing this festival, but it's also a massive indictment because for a thousand years, they haven't carried out what God asked them to do by celebrating with this festival. That, 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 that blows my mind. But the other thing that I mind with it is that God plays the long game. You know, we get upset if people, you know, stop celebrating God for five years, if, you know, they, they've, you know, missed him for five years. Here is a people that have not celebrated as they were asked to for a thousand years, and then God just brings them back um, and, and sets up the statutes again and gets them celebrating in the way they should again. God has a long game in mind. And so I, that's comforting for me because I've got three children and I've got a brother. And, and, you know, I can't control my family. I, I really, really try a lot, but I can't control them. But I've got a God who is constantly weaving things into his plan and who is in control ultimately. And so you, he can be trusted. A thousand years, he brings them back. Ezra chapter 8, I mean, sorry, Nehemiah chapter 8, 18. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival. And then on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly as was required by the law. Chapter 9, verse 1. On October 31, the people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. So we kind of parking lotted last time on the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we talked about that Judaism by its nature is a joyous, celebratory kind of religion, that they have four cups of wine at Passover. I know I say that a lot, but I'm obviously impressed. But, um, but they, they, they're to feast and to have festivities is part of their religion. Um, and, and I asked the question last time, do you think that Christianity is marked by joy to the people around us? And how about we try to recapture that? But there is always a time for fasting as well. So they had all the feasting, they celebrated day after day, and then they come and they fast. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. 
as they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Now, let me just tell you, this isn't a race thing. This is a religion thing. This isn't a, a race thing that, oh, they're, they're you know, we're, we're separating ourselves. They weren't the chosen nation, it's true, but it was a religious thing that they were not following after the same gods. So it was a, a signif- symbolism of them being polluted by the nations around them, not because the nations around them are dirty, but the nations around them weren't following the same God. They had different worship to the God they had. So it wasn't a racist thing. Um, It says this, verse 3, They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. They remained standing in place. They were not wearing the shoes that I am wearing today. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. This is a six-hour service right now. So let me first point out our softness. How soft are we? We are incredibly soft. Um, But also, there's obviously a great work going on here in their hearts. Now, I would say that, but but there's nations around us that have six-hour church services without blinking. Um, so yes, God's doing a great work in their hearts, but you go to PNG, you go to, you go to any of the islands, you go to, you know, the Western church and the way that we honor your time. I wonder sometimes if we're doing your disservice rather than of us, um, we're going to keep doing it, <laughs> but you know, I wonder, uh, so it's, it's good to remind ourselves that this is what's happening. And I just want to hone in, um, on the fact that they confess their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Now, having to do it for three hours, you're going to be trying to find every sin that you can to confess because you've got three hours to do it in. What is it about us as a nation, as a people, that we are so hesitant to say sorry for the things that went before us? I don't know if you have these conversations where you say, well, that's not me. I didn't do that. That was years ago. Why should I have to apologise for that? But here are people that are confessing the sins of their ancestors. This isn't just in Nehemiah. It's a corporate thing in Nehemiah. But in Daniel, he stands there um, praying and confesses the sins of his whole nation. And so I just want to point out to you this, um, what's that it goes first? Precedent of corporate historical responsibility. Corporate historical responsibility, where we as a group take responsibility for the things that were done before us. We're bad at that. I don't know. I think even particularly in the country, we're bad at that. I have a lot of conversations with people like, I didn't do it. I'm not saying sorry for it. It wasn't me. I wasn't even here. But here's a, a, a precedent, um, and not only one, but many in the Bible of them saying, well, it was done People who, and we've perpetuated it. Whatever happened then, it's been perpetuated by us. We're in the system that was created back there. So I'll point out an obvious one with our First Nations people. I talk to so many people who are like, nah, wasn't me. I'm not apologizing for it. But, but imagine if we all decided to take responsibility rather than negate responsibility. Imagine if our first, imagine in our marriages, in our households, if the first thing that we do, it did was to take responsibility rather than try and get rid of it. That would change our lives. And if we were willing to do it, it would change our culture. It would change our society. So I'll just put that out for you. You can, in your reflection time, talk about how much you disagree with that statement and uh, continue as you were. But, but here it is. It's not, it's not me. It's Nehemiah. He said it. Okay. Uh, number four, verse four. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, they all stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. Then the leaders of the Levites or the other people, they called out to them, stand up and praise the Lord your God, and he, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. 
Then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. The best way to start prayer is always with exaltation. It's the best way to start praying. And I encourage you, if you kind of flick straight into what you need from God, try to reroute it and try to pause it and start always, even start your praising God. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. And this is how easy it is to praise God. You just start noticing things around you. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You're attributing to God his might in, the, in creation. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. What we're about to see here is a summary of the whole Old Testament. They're about to pray a summary of the whole Old Testament. So if you ever wonder where's things fit in, how does it go, go to Nehemiah chapter 9 and you'll see how the whole arc of history actually works as it relates to um, the Bible. Verse 8, when he had proved himself faithful, this is Abraham, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. <laughs> They're my favourite, the Girgashites. <laughs> It sounds almost like a swear word. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. So here they're referencing a covenant that God made with Abraham, where in those days um, they would make a treaty and they would slay animals and make a horrific pathway of these cut up animals and you know the blood would flow between and the the two parties would hold hands and walk between this the halves of the animals and say if we don't keep greedy may what's been done to these animals be done to us so um try that for your next mortgage appointment where you sign the contract just like if you don't stick to this <laughs> um, but what happened with Abraham is that Abraham set up all the animals either side and uh, he fell into a sleep and then a torch passed and, and Abraham knew it because he was in these days he knew it that God himself was saying if I don't keep my covenant with you Abraham he didn't even require Abraham to walk through because God knows that we are but dust and that we're human, that we can't keep our covenant promise to him. And he was saying, I will keep my covenant promise to you regardless and I will make happen what I say is going to happen. So that's what that is referencing. Verse 9, you saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt. So after Abraham, then we had a bunch of other people and and they ended up becoming a nation in Egypt. Um, Isaac, um, Joseph, so Joseph and Prince of Egypt, anyway, watch the movie. Um, so they became slaves and then they came out. It says, you saw the misery of our ancestors in Egypt and you heard their, heard their cries from beside the Red Sea. They escaped Egypt or actually they were delivered from Egypt. They didn't even need to escape. They, there wasn't um, an uprising. God made it happen. They marched out of Egypt with Egypt's wealth got to the Red Sea, said, what on earth is happening, God? Why have you brought us here to kill us? God opened the Red Sea. And um, verse 10, you displayed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, his officials and all his people, for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors. You have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land. And then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea. They sank like stones beneath the mighty waters. You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. 
Verse 13, you came down at Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and instructions that were just and decrees and commands that were good. You instructed them concerning your holy Sabbath and you commanded them through your servant Moses to obey all your commands, decrees and instructions. So here is the Mosaic covenant. We had the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And this is God making another agreement with his people. And, And this is the... If you read it in the book of Exodus and, and then Deuteronomy, Leviticus, outlining the law, actually it's language it uses then is like a marriage where God is proposing to his people and saying, let's be together forever, but these will be the conditions of our marriage. And it's a contractual um, arrangement that they had in marriages back then. Uh, Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession to the land you had sworn to give them. Verse 16, but our ancestors were proud and stubborn and they paid no attention to your command. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles that you had done for them. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. Now, they didn't actually go back to Egypt, but they appointed a leader so that they could, they wanted to not have God as their leader. They wanted a person as their leader, which essentially put them back in slavery. It's the same with us. We get God as our new authority in our life, but then we try to take back authority over our lives because we like to be in control. Anyone else like to be in control? Yes. Yes, you do. And, uh, and, and then we actually go back to slavery when we do that. God frees us from the need to control everything about our lives and says, I'll take care of you. But we go, oh, actually, I want to control my life. And we send ourselves back into slavery. Um, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich and in, failing, in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you to Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies. And God, that same God, when we create idols in our life and say, gee, I'm good. Check, check this out. Check out my business on Instagram. How good am I? God still bears with us. And even when we feel like we've, we're we're self-made people. He still bears with us. Verse 20, 19. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud, did I already read that? No. The pillar of cloud led them forward by day and the fire showed them the way through the night. You sent your good spirit to instruct them and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Hallelujah. Verse 2. <laughs> Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations. So what he said he would do, he's now doing. And you placed people in every corner of the land. They took over the king Sihon of Heshbon and the land of Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. Verse 24, you went in and took possession. They are just recounting the goodness of God to them. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things with cisterns already dug and vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. Verse 26, but despite all this, They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you and they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who made them suffer. So this is now their recent history. This is them 
handed over, have handed over to their enemies and caused to suffer. But in their time of trouble, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven in your great mercy. You sent them liberators who rescued them from their enemies. All right, we're going to stop there. Halfway through the prayer. No, we're going to finish it. Okay, but as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight and once more you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turned and cried to you again for help, you listened once more from heaven. In your one mercy, you rescued them many times. Anyone been rescued many times? Yeah. You warned them to return to your law, but they became proud and obstinate and disobeyed your commands. They did not follow your regulations by which people will find life if only they obey. They stubbornly turned their backs on you and refused to listen. In your love, you were patient with them for many years. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but still they wouldn't listen. So once again, you allowed the peoples of the land to conquer them. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them completely or abandon them forever. What a gracious and merciful God you are. I love what Sandy Irwin said one time in Reflections. Always look for the buts in the Bible. But as soon as they're at peace, it says, but, um, where is it? Um, Yeah, it was good though. Um, It said, but in your great mercy, you did not destroy them. We've got to find those. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love, do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors. All your people from the day kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. So here they're saying that they've taken full responsibility. They've confessed all their sins and the sins of their ancestors. And now they're saying, God, we acknowledge that, but would you still come and be faithful to us? Um, Ancestors. What verse are we up to? (laughs) Nate, how did you know that? Oh, every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly and you gave us only what we did. Um, our kings, leaders, priests and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large, fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today, we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings you have over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our stock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. The people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing on this sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. And next week we'll discover what they actually promised. But suffice to say for right now and today that they um, are now in the land, they're back in the land, but it's no longer their land. They've been returned to their home and they're not in hell anymore, but it's not theirs. Now everything that they had, they have lost. It's all now for the kings that are over them. And they never get it back. They never get it back. There's a time of uprising with the Maccabees in between the Old and the New Testament, but it's quickly put down. And they are an occupied nation until Jesus comes and beyond. And we know that there's still a whole lot of hardship in that nation and uh, in, in that area. So um, in view of all that, how important is it for us to, one, make sure that we return to the Lord and put his teaching first, to acknowledge where we go wrong and take responsibility and full responsibility for it, and three, recognise that God is in control and he's working his grand and greater purpose in our lives as well. All right, let's take a moment to think about that, to discuss, and uh, then we're going to hear from Caleb and Renee. Well, Missions Month in May is where we actually um, highlight our missions partners and not to ask you for any more money, 
uh, unless God puts it on your heart, but just to highlight where our money's actually going. Um, we, our aim, we haven't always made it there, uh, depending on the year, but our aim as a church is to always put 10% towards missions. So what, just like, you know, we in our own finances decide to put God first in them, that we would put what is at God's heart, which is the poor and, um, and missions, obviously, uh, to donate 10% of what we have coming in as a church. It, it doesn't always make it, but it is definitely our aim. Um, so Renee and Caleb are from the Horizon Project and are actually dear friends of ours as well. Caleb and I went to India together when I was 19. You were... 17. 17. So we went yes. as a group. And, um, yeah, that was probably... You already had a heart for missions, but that, it was there as well. And then Nay and I actually grew up together. Um, I've known Nay since she was born and used to sleep over at a house as a teenager, but always remember seeing um, the voice of the martyrs, a newsletter on your um, bedside table. And so you obviously always had a heart for missions as well. Definitely. <laughs> Caleb, can you, for those of us who don't know, just yes. tell us what the Horizon Project is? Yeah, so uh, the Horizon Project partners with churches in South Asia, uh, all the way up to Nepal, and we work predominantly working through guys on the ground and uh, helping to equip, empower and resource uh, local believers to impact their nation and make change that remains in those beautiful countries. So that's a, that sounds like a, like a church planting thing or a, a church growth thing, but you also, those churches on the ground involved with other projects as well, aren't they? Yeah, so we uh, help with church planning, but we also obviously do a lot of work around justice and helping poor, uh, working with children. Uh, in Nepal, we work to help children get out of institutionalised care. Um, we have a small um, boutique-style welfare centre, and our goal is that as children come into that, we have uh, employed, qualified social workers on the ground who try and locate uh, the children's family or extended family, should they to exist, often kids in these nations are in institutionalised care because it's the quickest, easiest way to deal with them or even for economic drivers rather than welfare drivers. And so we try and actually find out, has this child got a family? It might be an extended family. Sometimes we even discover they've got a mum or a dad alive. And what support does that family need to be able to be reunited with this child and see them grow up with a loving family that every kid deserves? So it's not the cheapest or the easiest way to deal with child welfare, but we believe it is the best long-term way to see transformation with inside uh, the nation of Nepal. How do, how do children, and I know that in various other countries that you can't mention, we have feeding programs mm -hmm. and medical centres and whatnot, but how do, how do children make their way, how are they identified as needing care? Yeah, so everything we do is, uh, we're registered with the government, we, we have a separate charity inside Nepal that... Um, so services find these children, often, you know, often kids will be in full-time employment as a nine or 10 year old, that gets brought to the government's attention and they have outlawed child labour officially. Uh, obviously in regional areas it still occurs regularly. Um, but if that comes to the government's attention, uh, we are registered with the government and at any given time we need to keep our numbers at around 20 children with inside the welfare centre. And so as we're able to rehome kids, that creates a need for more children in. Um, and the Nepalese government is actually working hard at the moment to try and improve their the way they deal with kids, um, and a centre like ours that has a very high reputation, uh, they are very quick to go, oh, here's another kid, <laughs> um, because there's a lot of centres in that nation that need to be shut down altogether. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, 
Um, we, as you know, partner with Tri-Freedom as well, mm -hmm. and uh, that is talks about liberating people from human trafficking. Is that a yeah. big thing in that country? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a problem when you get children displaced from mum and dad into a institution. Um, the, the risk of further trafficking, on trafficking, I mean, there can be even trafficking with inside that system itself. Um, not always, and we certainly don't want to paint everybody involved in that as bad or evil, um, but they, it, it certainly increases the risks of on trafficking and there can be trafficking involved in that, as I said. So um, it's a big issue. Like Nepal is a source nation for human trafficking. Um, Caleb, we're in Nehemiah. Obviously, one of the big indictments against those people was their negation of justice. Can mm -hmm. you speak to us a bit about God's heart for the widow and the orphan? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because even the term social justice probably rankles with some Christians these days because it can mean a certain thing in our social context. But the reality is, it is about the very nature of God. So, uh, especially when we're working in nations that you know, have not come from a Christian background as a nation. Uh, the Christian literacy levels over there would be even lower than here. Uh, I think it's absolutely fundamental that we demonstrate to a people who God is, his character, that God himself is just, that God cares for the brokenhearted, that God cares for the poor. And so it's not just about doing good, it's about revealing who God is to a people through goods and revealing the very nature and character and heartbeat of God. And in reality, what we're doing is we're incarnating the message of Jesus in that nation and looking for places where there is hurt, where there is broken, where there is pain, and demonstrating and incarnating, putting flesh and blood on that story and saying Jesus is here to minister to those areas, no matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how costly, no matter how inconvenient, we're not going to turn our back on those places, but we're going to demonstrate the very innate character of God. And that's ultimately what um, social justice from a Christian perspective is all about, whether it be in the third world or whether it be in our own backyard. Uh, Nay, um, how have we gone during the pandemic? How's the Horizon Project, how has it affected them? Uh, it's been pretty massive in Nepal um, and our South Asia partners because it's not like Australia, we have an incredible um, system with Centrelink and our government benefits that they help and assist so many families, but they don't have any of that over there. And so if you lose your job, you lose your job. Like, you, there is no other option. There is no backup. And so we have found um, for a lot of our campuses that um, our church campuses, they've gone back to their villages, their home villages, because they can't live in the city anymore. It's just way too expensive. Um, and, you know, the, the kids have... Because they've had lockdown from March last year uh, to January this year, they were in lockdown pretty much. And they've just gone back into it uh, three weeks ago because the pandemic has just had a massive wave again. And it's been definitely been heartbreaking and very uh, hard for them. However, God has still been moving. And, um, you know, people are still reaching out in faith. And, um, for example, we had... Um, we've been fundraising for... Uh, a community centre in Kathmandu that isn't just for church gatherings, but it's for um, homework centre, it's for education centres on about human trafficking and how they can stay safe, or so many things. And we've been fundraising for a long time for that and amidst all these people losing employment and, um, you know, so many things cut from them, they've purchased some land and they've built 
the first floor of their building in a year where it's been incredibly hard. So God is faithful. He is so good. And he has just poured into them. And he's responded like he always does to their faithfulness to him and their generosity. Yeah. Uh, Our partnership, what does it mean to the Horizon Project? What's that actually do on the ground? Um, You guys are incredible. I've written it down because I didn't want to get it wrong because we've got so many um, partnerships happening, which is just amazing. So the chapel... um, donations go to a family sponsorship so that covers a family who is pastoring a local church they've gone and planted and they can't be vocational like we can in Australia because the population is so massive you either work it or you don't you can't do part-time and so we've committed as um, an Australian organization to support those guys who want to put boots on the ground and get out there and plant churches and I know that church planting is a big thing for you guys and um we have four children sponsored through your gen- your generous donations as well, and um, some of those kids are being reunified back into family, and they still require a minimum amount of donations as well, just to help make sure that they're still receiving everything that they need to um, on a day-to-day basis. And our social worker here is absolutely brilliant, and getting these children reunified with their families, um, half of his wage is paid through the chapel as well, um, and... Um, yeah, and towards our child reunification um, payments that we need as well. So it covers quite a broad area um, and definitely we couldn't do what we do without the chapel's donations. That's yeah, awesome. That's all you guys. So, um, that's, you know, if you're wondering what you do to help the poor, that's what you're doing to help the poor. Uh, there's always more need, obviously. If, if we were able to increase our contribution um, into the future, what would that look like for the Horizon Project? Probably one of the biggest things is our child um, sponsorship and reunification. So Caleb spoke about the children coming in and and trafficking is a massive risk over there in child labour. And so our heart is that every child deserves, um, you know, an upbringing where they are loved and they are cared for and... And they grow up, hopefully, with a relationship with Jesus. Obviously, that would, that's what we would love for that to happen. But um, in a nation where that's not always possible because they might not come across it, but we can still give help, support them. And um, that's just getting bigger and bigger. So we have our feeding centre where the children come in and go then go out re- reunified with family. But there's ongoing support and sponsorship for them because they need an education. Because, you know, education, apart from Jesus, education is the key out of poverty. And so if we can give them an education and, um, you know, keep them well nourished, yeah. that is a massive thing for their future. Yeah. Um, well, love, we're going to put the coffee number up on the screen. And so if you've got any questions for Renee and Caleb, feel free to sit or just lift your hand and I'll race you the mic. Um, uh, but if you've got any questions for them at all, Caleb, feel free to ask them is what I'm trying to say. Um, Caleb, um, if you could, like if there was something that you could let people know about um, the need, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I guess it's... Um, just, if there's one thing we'd love to be able to do, it'd probably bottle the, the experience of actually putting flesh and blood on these stories. It's one thing to hear about a need, but it's not this existential need. This is real-life people who have a story, who have dreams and have hopes that, you know, want to live differently. And it's not bad people 
it's often just people caught in really difficult circumstances. So much of the horrifics here about like children being trafficked or children being put into institutionalised care even though there was a mother or father still available, the drivers of those things are poverty and, and, and inequity. And it's very easy for us to sit back here living separately from that and think, well, I wouldn't do that. No matter what, I wouldn't do that. But it's really hard to know how we would respond in those situations when you've and you know, parents and family themselves are uneducated. So like Ren has mentioned, one of the things in our um, community centre is educating around how to protect your family from trafficking. Because even understanding those things um, can dramatically shift the story for somebody's life. So I guess the biggest thing is to realise that there is a human face at the end of all of this. These are beautiful people. We had an experience a, a couple of years ago where we went into a village in um, Gorka which is where the huge earthquake was um, some years back. And when we first went there, they were a little bit like, well, this Christian organisation doing... Um, and it was OK. We did a little bit of work, but not heaps. We went there after the earthquake and took thousands and thousands of dollars worth of school resources for the school. And so much... Uh, they were so excited about us coming that they actually closed the school down for the afternoon and had a big ceremony, which was a little overwhelming. <laughs> And the elders of the village were there and the political leaders were there as well. And we got to speak and I knew that I had to use incredible wisdom in this moment because it was the first time that we'd spoken in this village publicly. And so I just began to tell the story of, you know what, there's lots about us and Nepalese people that is different. Like, for example, one of the reasons I love going to Nepal is it's about the only place in the world where I feel huge. <laughs> like, I know, I know what Daz feels like. I'm like... <laughs> Come on. All right. Um, they eat curry for breakfast. Like, and I mean, it's hot going in and it's hot later on as well. Yeah, there, there's so much that's different, the clothes that they wear. And yet there is so much that's the same because the heart of man doesn't really change that much based on culture. And one of the things that I know about Nepalese people is that they love their children no matter how poor they are, no matter what, how we might judge some of the decisions they make, they love their kids and they want their kids to have a better life than they've had. And so I was able to say to these guys, look, there's lots different. And we joked around about what was different between us. You know, they've got beautiful brown skin, I've got this white skin, I've got to cover up or I get sunburnt. And, <laughs> but you know what? We love our kids. And I said, as, as Christians, we were just sitting back in our country thinking, if we were in your situation, what would we want somebody to come and do for us? I just want them to come and help my kids. So we've just come for no agenda other to come and help you guys love your kids and see them have a great future. Uh, do you know what? We were invited back to that village a couple of... Uh, about 12 months later, wasn't it? They closed down everything for a couple of... Three days, the school was closed down. We were able to run a medical centre where we had paediatricians, we had dentists. Um, everybody was there. And, and they said to us, oh, it's this Christian organisation again. We know you guys, you're so welcome to come. And our pastors on the ground said, listen, this is a Hindu country. You're not allowed to force people to live for Jesus. You're not allowed to try and somebody or convince them or coax them into living for Jesus. And we would never want to do that. So is it okay if at the end of each day we have a little rally where we explain to the people that all this generosity is just the heart of our Jesus God for you but if you want to live for him, you've got to choose to do that for yourself. Nobody can make you do it. And the elders of the village just went, that's a great idea. Let's do that. 
Uh, and it's just generosity and love creating a way. We've got a permanent relationship with that village now. And uh, it just happens by, by seeing people as people and putting a human story on it. Missions isn't something that we do. It's not just something we give to. It's a very heartbeat of our God to offer dignity and restoration and hope to hurting people. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Na Renee, do you think you guys will ever live there? Oh, Mikey says that Daz and I are the only ones who do it, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not just us, Mikey. <laughs> In a heartbeat. Um, you know, we've been going over there for 12 years and for us it's like family and our girls absolutely love being there. You know, we take our kids on the journey with us and they've been so many times and to them, like our good friends over there, their uncle and auntie, like, they're family. And, you know, for this season, God's got us here, but maybe one day we'll have boots on the ground over there permanently. Who knows? Wow. Awesome. Hey again. Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.